Now, we come here to the fifth chapter, and as we've indicated, we have come to probably the most symbolic, and certainly it's highly visionary, these next two visions that we have before us. We have, first of all, here in the fifth chapter, the vision of the flying roll or scroll, however you care to describe it. Now, there takes place here a rather sharp division in these visions, that is, in the meaning of them. You see, up to this point, why he has made it very clear that God intends to put down the enemies. We had that in the first two chapters. God would put down all the enemies of this nation, and they would become the thing that God intended them originally to become, a nation of priests. You'll recall that when God brought them out of Egypt, that was his desire, that the entire nation become a nation of priests. But because of their sin, only one tribe was chosen. Then we saw that they would have to first be cleansed. And we had that in the vision of Joshua and Satan, and the nation was to be cleansed. And then there was the vision of the branch and the rock with seven eyes in it, the stone. Now, all of this looked forward to the kingdom age when God again would turn and use them. Having cleansed them, they become then a light to the world. And we saw the lampstand and the two olive trees and the oil represents the Holy Spirit, and they're to witness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, all that is good and well enough, but does that mean that every member of that nation, because he's an Israelite, will be chosen, even those that are living and continue in rebellion and sin? Well, no, God doesn't choose all of them, and so we have now in this vision and in the next one the judgment of God that will come upon those that do not become obedient unto God, and that he will judge them and ferret out those that are rebellious among them. Now, by the same token, God will do that in the world, because actually these visions have in mind the local nation, but they also have in mind a world view. There is here a global gospel. It looks forward to the establishment of God's kingdom here upon the earth. And this, of course, makes very clear the thing that God had said through Paul about the nation Israel. He says, not all Israel is Israel, not every member. It is the national unity, the corporate body that will be accepted. But any individual in that will have to measure up and have to be obedient to God and come God's way to be cleansed, as we've seen here, and to accept and receive the Messiah. They would have to do that, each individual would. And you can say the same thing today of the church. Not every church member is a Christian, is really in the body of believers that's called the church. 
and there will come a day of the ferreting out. Division is to be made. Now, the division of the church is at the rapture, and the division for Israel and the nations on the earth will be at the second coming of Christ, when he gathers his elect into the kingdom, and then there will be a judgment, and Satan is to be bound for a thousand years. And all of that is in the picture that's given to us here, and that is for the encouragement of these people here, because it had a very definite application for them as it does today. Now, with that thought in mind, let me begin reading here in chapter 5 at verse 1. He says, "...then I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, a flying scroll." Now, this is the vision of the flying scroll, or roll. And this first thing we probably should establish here is that this roll or scroll represents the Word of God. It speaks of the Word of God. And we get that from Ezekiel. If you went over to the little prophecy of Ezekiel, to the second chapter, at verse 9, he says, "...and I looked, and behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein." And he spread it before me. It was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentation, mourning, and woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. Now he was to digest the word of God, and then he was to give it out. And believe me, that is a tremendous picture for preachers. We ought to eat the Word of God. We ought to digest the Word of God. And it ought to be in our mouths as sweet as honey. might be bitter in our tummy, but it should be in our mouth sweet as honey. Something that we delight in giving out. Now, that is the thing that Ezekiel was told to do. And here we have this flying scroll. Now, the very interesting thing is and I probably ought to emphasize this. He says here, "...then I turned and lifted up mine eyes." And I must call your attention to this again. This man got none of these visions with his eyes closed and asleep. He was wide awake, his eyes were open, and he saw these with his eyes. This is not a dream that this man is having by any means. He says, I raised my eyes once more, and I saw, and if you'll notice what he says, actually the literal is, I saw and I looked. Well, I tell you, when you see and you look, you're going to see something that's out yonder ahead of you. Now, what he sees is the thing that is important. It's a flying scroll. Now, 
it denotes, as we've said, the Word of God, and I think that that can be very well attested to, and you hear today, well, there's a great difference of opinion in many interpretations, but the solid interpretation that's come down through the centuries has been that this is the Word of God in general, and that actually it is the Ten Commandments in particular. Now, this is the thing that I'm very anxious to call your attention to, as it, I think, is very meaningful for us today. And it's this, "'He said unto me, What seest thou?' And I answered, "'I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its breadth is ten cubits.'" Well, now, that means it's a pretty good size. In fact, it's a little larger than the scroll in that day. A papyrus scroll, or it could be one that was made of skin. Some of them were made of skins. And you take one that's 30 feet long and 10 inches wide on that, why, you could write the book of Genesis, or the whole of Isaiah could be put on that type of a scroll. And you see, the way that it was done was it's on two rollers, and you roll the scroll off of one onto the other. And as you roll, while you read, and the reading is actually not lengthwise, but it's up and down the way you would hold the scroll. And as you would turn, you'd read, come to another page. Actually, you just roll the scroll over. But here is one that is really quite a big one, because we're told here its length is 20 cubits. Now, a cubit, as we've indicated before, it was ordinarily from the end of your middle finger to your elbow, and that runs about 18 inches. Of course, it's the size of the individual. One fellow could be a pretty tall fellow and have a big long arm, and you'd get a little bit more than 18 inches, and you'd have a short fella, you'd get less than 18 inches. And I have a notion that the buyer for a dry goods store in that day would be the tall guy, and the short fella would be the one that would be the salesman to sell it afterward. But generally, it was 18 inches. So when you have 20 cubits here, that means it's about 30 feet long and it's about 15 feet wide. Now, that's much larger than a bed sheet and even a king-size bed, and it would be larger than a wagon sheet. It would be a pretty good size scroll that you have, and the only way you could see it would be for it to be spread out. And since he identifies it as a flying scroll, Well, here is this great flying scroll, and I imagine that it moved over the earth. I'm sure that's the thought that he had in mind here. Verse 3, Then said he unto me, This is the curse, or the judgment, that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on one side, according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off on the other side. Now, apparently, this scroll had on it the Ten Commandments. 
And the Ten Commandments were divided into the two parts. One part is man's relationship to God. That's the first four commandments. And then the last six commandments have to do with man's relationship to man. Now, you have that here, the one that stealeth. Now, that commandment has to do with a man's relationship to another man. And that, I think, is clearly identified if you turn over to the 50th Psalm and verse 18. And let me read several verses there, and I think you'll see the point. He says, "...when thou sawest a thief, then thou contendest with him." Thou shalt not steal. Here we have the same thing again, you see. And when thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. You see, it now goes along the seventh commandment with it. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. That is, you lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now, because men in that day were able to break the law and get by with it, they could break the Ten Commandments, God did nothing they came to the conclusion, well, he's just like we are. He's not going to do anything about it. Well, God says that he is. Now, I want you to notice this because I think there's put down here a great principle concerning the law and especially the Ten Commandments. Now, they were given to the nation Israel. They were given to the nation Israel as they stood in the crossroads of the world. They had a tremendous influence on Egypt. They became a nation down there. Egypt, a great world empire. They went into Babylonian captivity. They had a great influence upon that first great world kingdom, that first great world empire. And they had an influence upon Assyria. They had an influence upon the Greco-Macedonian empire and also upon the Romans so that the Ten Commandments were never given to the Christian as a way of life. We've been called to a much higher plane, and we attain that plane by grace, because actually man can't even attain the plane of the law unaided. And God gave them the law and gave them no aid to it. There was no such thing as filling of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, among the people of that day, so that actually man in his own strength and ability couldn't even measure up to the Ten Commandments. Now, God today has put us under grace, and he has furnished us and given to us the Holy Spirit, whereby that we now can have the fruit of the Spirit in our life, which is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering, and those things were never in the law. Now, what then is the relationship of law today to the Christian? Well, he certainly is not to break it. The law was given to a nation, 
and it was to become the law of that nation, and they were to obey the law. Well, they disobeyed it, of course, and God put them out of the land. But they scattered this, and today the mark of civilization has been actually the commandments of God. These things that relate especially to man. And you remember those were the commandments. The Lord Jesus turned on the light on that young man that came to him. And he never turned the other commandments. He took those commandments that have to do with the man's relationship to man. Now, that young man could measure up to that, but he couldn't measure up to the other because he didn't recognize the Lord Jesus as being the Messiah and being God manifest in the flesh. But now the Ten Commandments produce a civilization. And you can say what you please, but the great civilizations of this world have had these laws as basic. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet that which is not your own, by the way. And thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, that has been basic to a nation, building the homes, building a way of life, and establishing a civilization. Now, as long as our nation had that as bedrock, we were blessed to God, and our problems seemed to be few compared to what they are today. But today, the nations of the world have abandoned it, and they have come to the same place that the nation Israel came to. And God has given them as an example. God says, I will judge those, though I've chosen the nation, I will judge every individual that breaks these. And so this flying scroll represents over the whole earth, it represents the basis on which God deals with nations. And the interesting thing is very difficult to find anything wrong with it. Now, God goes ahead and says this. He says, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief. That is, that breaks the commandments that have to do with a man's relationship with man. And under the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, even by the name of God, he would perjure himself and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with its timber and its stones. And God will bring down any civilization that doesn't follow those great principles. But now, let's clearly understand, we're not talking about how you become a Christian. The only way in the world you can become a child of God today is through faith in Jesus Christ, and he's called you to a higher plane than the Ten Commandments. He wants you to have joy in your life. He wants you to have peace in your life. He wants you to have love in your life. These are the things that only the Spirit of God can produce in hearts and lives. Now, friends, we are coming to the second vision that's here in the fifth chapter. And actually, it's the ninth vision. We're getting down to the end of these visions. And as I said last time, that one of the flying scroll in the first part of the fifth chapter, and this one, the woman in the ephah, they are two of the most highly symbolic visions that we have of all of the ten. 
and they are very meaningful. Actually, both of them make a right about face almost, at least a 90-degree turn. And instead now of the fact that it's a word of comfort, it's now a word of judgment. And we saw that last time in the flying scroll. Now, suppose that I told you today that last night a missile from outer space landed in my backyard, and two little men in green got out and talked with me. Would you believe it? Well, if you won't, then I won't tell it to you then. There are intelligent people today as well as other kind who actually believe in flying saucers. Some even testify they've seen them. Even they've seen the little people inside. Now, the Navy, I understand, has carried on a serious investigation over the years. And there are two groups that say, I believe sincerely and vociferously that there are the flying saucers, and others doubt and deny it equally vociferously. Tell the truth. I had an invitation many years ago when I was pastor down in downtown Los Angeles to go out to Apple Valley to a large rock that is out in that desert area to a landing field where the missiles came in. That is, that's what they told me, and that they would give me a ride in one of the flying saucers. And I didn't go out there. Two reasons. The first reason, I wasn't quite sure that there were flying saucers out there. I'm very much of a skeptic. And the other thing is that I was afraid that if I did go out there, they'd put me in one of them and take me off and not bring me back, and I wouldn't give me a round-trip ticket. So I didn't go out there. But I voiced on several occasions my skepticism and my cynicism about the old business. And so these that believed in it certainly thought that they were landing and taking off out there around that big rock beyond Apple Valley. And I've been by that big rock since then. And I don't know why, but I always pick up speed going by there. Now, Zachariah didn't believe in flying saucers either, but he saw two of them in a vision. He saw two flying saucers, missiles from outer space, as I said at the beginning, Zechariah is one of the apocalypses of the Bible, and it's actually more ethereal, seraphic, and spiritual, and highly symbolic. In other words, it's out of this world. Now, we need to avoid fanaticism on one hand and materialism on the other. Now, in that vision we had last time, it was of a flying scroll. The size of it was 20 by 10 cubits. And on it were written the two tables of the law. On one side, man's relationship to man. On the other side, man's relationship to God. Now, we called attention to the fact that it speaks of judgment, that in the nation Israel at that time, God was going to ferret out those that were disobedient, those who would not return to him, and he would judge them, but he would choose the nation. That would be true of the future, that there is coming a day that when God establishes his kingdom here upon the earth, he intends to ferret out, not only among his own people, 
But among the Gentiles that are left on the earth after the church is removed, and after all the removal of the church, is a separation of the true church from the false church. The true church, of course, will be taken out, and those that are not really Christians but are church members will be left here upon the earth. Actually, this is a picture of judgment, and it has a message for us today that he intends to do the same thing in the church, so that this has a threefold meaning. Now, the thing that is interesting here, I called attention to the fact that this scroll was 20 by 10, and I do not know whether any of you noticed it last time that it was the same size as the holy place also of the porch of Solomon in the temple. And that's in 1 Kings, the 6th chapter, verse 3. Now, that was the basis, you see, where the priests could come and worship by the law. But they could never go inside the veil unless the blood was put in there, and only the high priest went in as a representative. But in that place, they stood on redeemed ground, having been redeemed by the blood. Now, You and I today stand on redeemed ground. We haven't been redeemed by silver and gold or any precious thing, any precious jewel, but by the precious blood of Christ. In other words, you and I are not standing on a flying carpet. You and I do not rest on a missile from heaven. We have been delivered from the penalty and power of sin As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we're still at the launching pad, and get ready for this one. And we're going to see now something else. And we're going to see, actually, the first astronaut as we come to verse 5. Believe it or not, We're going to see a woman that's in one of these capsules. It's called an ephah. That's a bushel basket. Now, will you look at this? Verse 5 of chapter 5. Then the angel who talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And again, I must call attention to it. He's got his eyes wide open looking at this. This is no dream. But his eyes are open. He sees this. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goeth forth. Now, an ephah is a measurement a little larger than a bushel. And he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. Now, here, the first astronaut was a woman. I wasn't very kind to women's lib the last time, and I'm not going to be today. But here is a good point. The first astronaut was a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. Now, this is the vision that is before us, and we want to look at it for just a few moments. Now, that ephah, a bushel basket, is a space capsule. It's made of lead, a most unlikely metal for flying, but it withstands friction. You put Babbitt in a box. I know when I was a boy, I used to watch my dad put lead Babbitt in a box that the main shaft would run on, 
And all you had to do is just keep that oil so the friction would not burn it out. And so this would be good for travel if you got enough power to move it. Now, there's a woman in this space capsule, and she is, as we've said, the first astronaut. Now, again, let's look at it. He says here, Then the angel who talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes, see what this that is set before you. Well, and I said, What is it? After all, this is the first one Zechariah had ever seen, and he didn't know what it was. I'm sure many of you can remember the great thrill you had when you heard about John Glenn making a trip in space, and he didn't go very far, didn't go around the earth even, but it put man in space. Well, here is a woman in space, and it says, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. Now, let's stop there for just a moment, because this is a very important thing to see. Actually, what you have here is the continuation of judgment upon the sin and iniquity of these people. The sin and iniquity is going to be removed from the land when the millennium begins. And it looks forward to that. And it looks forward to the judgment of Babylon, because this vision needs to be put with the 18th chapter of Revelation, where you see the judgment of Babylon, which actually is commercial Babylon. And you have the judgment of religious Babylon in chapter 17. Now, what you have here is that which he's judging, which is this matter of covetousness, thou shalt not covet, and the love of money, commercialism, the greed that is connected with it. For to begin with, the bushel basket, the ephah, represents business. It represents commercialism, buying and selling. And that lead weight there that's emphasized, that lead weight actually is made for the weighing of produce. And it is to be used in just that way. Now, you will find out that one of the great sins of these people when they returned from Babylon was just simply that. They had an insatiable love for money, a love for things. And Nehemiah had to correct that. You remember that they were loaning to their brother. They were loaning to him at a high rate of interest, usury. And it was a sin, and they had been forbidden to do that according to the Mosaic law. And believe me, Nehemiah made them straighten that thing out. Now, when we come to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, that is a picture of life in that day after the temple was built, the last book of the Old Testament, and he asked the question, will a man rob God? And believe me, God answered it for them. He says, yet ye have robbed me. And God says that they were guilty of that. He says, ye have robbed me, even this whole nation has robbed me. Now, that is the thing that this man sees here, is that fact that this insatiable love of money, of trying to get rich, 
and trying to get rich just to accumulate money. And you're willing to hurt your brother in order to accumulate it, for that's what they were doing in Nehemiah's day. God says, I intend to remove that from the land. And I'm going to take it right back where you got it, which was down in the land of Babylon. I'd like for you to see something here for just a moment. The children of Israel were a pastoral and an agricultural people. And most of the Mosaic law has to do with that type of a situation. It has to do with the land, with the vineyards, with the grain, with all that sort of thing. And when these people were in the land, they were a pastoral people, agricultural people. And they are that largely over there today. They have certainly gone back to the land. Anytime they return to that land, they go back to the land, really. When they're out of that land, they do something else. You'll never find a Jewish farmer. At least I never heard of one. They just don't get in that business when they're out of that land. But when they return, they do. Now, down in Babylon, they had learned commercialism. And they learned it from the Gentiles. And they had an insatiable love for riches, love for material things, because they learned that down in Babylon. The Babylonians, the Gentiles, had that sort of thing. Now, this is a picture of judgment of that type of thing, that God intends to take this commercialism back down yonder to the land of Babylon. And when you go to the 18th chapter of the book of Revelation, you find that God is going to judge commercial Babylon at the setting up of his kingdom. He's going to get rid of that type of thing. And as you go through the Word of God, you'll find it's rather a revolutionary book. That may be another reason why some people don't like it. Now, it's interesting. They say that John Calvin got capitalism out of the Bible. And I think he did. But I want to say this. You can get more on the side of the poor people than you can on the side of the rich. Have you ever noticed again and again, and I've called attention to it, when we were back in the epistle of James, I call your attention where he said, Come now, you rich, weep and howl your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted. Just to gather money for the sake of gathering. And then he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. I tell you, I wonder if God might not have a word to say to some of these great corporations today, or in the great labor unions also. I'm not sure but what God has a word, and God intends to judge that sort of thing. That sort of thing's not going into the kingdom of God here upon this earth. And if there ever was a book that's revolutionary, it's this book here, The Word of God. It's too hot for a lot of folk to handle today. Now, there are a great many people who say, I'm amazed that you get by what you say on the radio. Well, I'm amazed too. But I'm only telling you what the Word of God says here. Here is a vision that reveals that God intends to take that thing. And those two women with stark wings, well, the stark in Scripture... It's not a picture of an angel. It's a dirty bird. It's an unclean bird. And the fact that the woman is there 
is another thing. Now, here's where I get in trouble. But any time that you see a woman out of place in Scripture, there's always an evil connotation. Take the woman that is taking leaven and putting it in the flour. That was wrong. That leaven is evil. It speaks of evil. That's the principle all the way through the Word of God. The leaven of evil. And we find that when a woman is out of place, you know the most lovely position of a woman is a woman that has a child. Do you know she can do something no man can do? You can talk about women's rights all you want to. What about men's rights? When a man going to start having babies? If we're going to have equal rights, I'm for that. However, I'm not for it, really. But the point is that she's the only one that can bring one in the world, and she's the only one in the world that knows who's the father, too. And therefore, God gave her that exalted position. And I don't care which direction a woman steps, she steps down when she steps from that position that God has given to her. What a picture. And when you see her moving yonder in religion, you find evil connected with it. And this is not a pretty picture here. This is God's judgment on commercialism. What a picture it is. Now, she represents, I think, this nation that had gone into commercialism in Babylon. And she represents that day that they'd been taken into captivity. Now they're returned, and God wanted to bless them, but that awful sin must be taken back to Babylon. And in the future, before God establishes his kingdom here upon this earth, he intends to remove that, and commercial Babylon will be judged. What a picture that you have here in this vision. Now let me read on here. Now, I think I'll drop down to verse 8. He said, this is the wicked one. And that wicked one is Antichrist. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of the lead upon the mouth of it. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and look, he's still seeing things. Behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. They lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Now they're going to move it. Moving what? Moving this matter of covetousness, this matter of the love of money, this matter of commercialism that becomes godless and heartless. And when it becomes godless, it becomes heartless. I can assure you that. Then said I to the angel who talked with me, Where do these bear the ephah? He said unto me to build for it a house in the land of Shinar. It's going back where it came from. And today, this is the thing that God will judge. Is God today in the stock market? Is God in big business? Is God in the labor unions? Of course he's not. Anyone with any intelligence knows that God is left out of the entertainment business also. God today is out, but God's going to judge, friends. God intends to remove these things from this earth someday. What a hope that is, a glorious hope it is, as we live in this present evil age. All right, until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, before we come to this sixth chapter 
of Zechariah. I don't want to let go the last chapter without clarifying something there. I'm of the opinion that there are some that have come to the conclusion that I'm a male chauvinist, that I have been rather harsh upon the female of the species in several of our recent broadcasts. And I haven't really meant to be that way. But we saw last time this woman in a bushel basket flying through the air. She's the first astronaut, and the first astronaut, therefore, was a woman. And she's in this bushel basket, and it's being carried by two women with wings of a stork. And a stork was an unclean bird. That in itself is rather suggestive. And they are taking it down to Shinar, the land of Shinar, to Babylon. And these two women are not the flying nuns either. They represent, in fact, the three women here represent an evil principle. Now, we have said that it represents because the bushel basket and that weight of lead that was there speak of big business. It speaks of commercialism. It speaks of that which is godless. And we said that this represented what Israel had learned from the Gentiles in Babylon. They were a pastoral, agricultural people. And they are that when they return to that land today even. But when they leave that land, they go into business. They run a store and they get involved in that. Now, this is a picture of God's judgment upon his people. And this woman in this bushel basket symbolizes that which is out of place religiously and spiritually. And that's true all the way through the Word of God. In Matthew 13:33, you have the woman that took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal. Well, it's interesting that women have been involved either as the founder or the leaders in most of the cults and isms and schisms today. And then you have the message the Lord Jesus gave to the church in Thyatira that he wanted that woman Jezebel put out because she was permitted to teach. She was out of place, you see. And then in Revelation 17, you have that harlot riding the beast. Now, that harlot does not represent the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his body, but it represents that organized religion that will be left here on the earth after the church, the true church, is removed, and I think it will go by the name of a church. And that picture is the most frightful one that we have in the Word of God. So that what we have here is a picture represents a system, and that system involves commercialism that's godless, big business, that worships the almighty dollar instead of the almighty God. And the almighty dollar is not so almighty today. That's been reduced down to a two-bit piece. It's a little fella today. And I tell you, in this day of inflation, the almighty dollar, is not a very big god to worship, and yet men still worship it. Now, all of this represents that 
godless system. Now, somebody says, but you put in your notes here that this is idolatry. Well, isn't covetousness idolatry? That is the way that it is described today. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. And the children of Israel, they no longer worship these handmade idols when they got to Babylon, but they transferred that service over to commercialism, to making money and doing business. Now, God's going to remove that from them for they are to be his priests during the millennium that is coming in the future. Now, this is this godless system, and it originated outside of the Garden of Eden. It is a godless thing. It's not racial in any way whatsoever. That is, it's not confined to one race. It's absolutely true of all races. And I want to give you the description of it that Dr. Unger gives in his book on Zechariah. He says, "...the system comprises the whole mass of unregenerate mankind, alienated from God, hostile to Christ, and organized as a system or federation under Satan." In more than 30 important New Testament passages, a full revelation of the satanic world system is presented. Satan is revealed as its directing head. And you'll find that in several passages of Scripture, by the way. John 12:31, Revelation 2:13 are a couple of them. And then the system is revealed to be wholly evil, as God evaluates it. God calls it absolutely a totally evil thing. I think probably that I ought to pass on to you just one scripture, and there are several on this. Galatians 1.4. It says, "...who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God our Father." this present evil world, this world system that is wholly evil. Another passage is Colossians 1.13. And it's shown to be limited and temporary because God intends to judge it. It's doomed to destruction at Christ's second advent. And it's characterized by pride and by greed and by war. And I'd like to add another word there, and that's covetousness. And it is perpetually perilous to the child of God. Now, God intends to remove that because he'll remove the people that have not returned to him because though the nation has in a corporate way, yet there are many individuals that haven't. And God intends to take it to Babylon, remove it there. Why? Because... You have in Revelation 17 the judgment of religious Babylon. And you have that harlot vision that John was given. is, to my judgment, the most frightful vision that we have in the entire Word of God. There's nothing quite as horrible as that. Then in the 18th of Revelation, we have God's judgment of commercial Babylon. Big business, if you please. And this is something that has come under the judgment of Almighty God. And so we have here these 
frightful pictures that are given. And so I trust that you won't blame me for adopting this interpretation because this is something that runs through the Word of God. And so we have here this woman representing actually big business, covetousness, idolatry, and all that is to be removed from God's people because those that are given to it are to be removed themselves, and they are to be judged. What a picture that we have here. Now, this is the judgment of God's chosen people. Now we come to chapter 6. And when we come to chapter 6, we've come now actually to the last of the visions, and we've identified them as ten visions. And I think probably at this point I ought to give each one of them by name again as we have listed them. We had first the riders under the myrtle trees. Then we had four horns. Then the four smiths. And then the man with the measuring line. And then Joshua and Satan. And then the branch and the stone with seven eyes. Then we had seven the lampstand and two olive trees. Then eight, the flying roll, a scroll. And the ninth, the woman in the ephah. And now we come to the tenth, the four chariots here in chapter 6. Now, some only find eight visions here, but we believe that it's highly consistent to see that we do have ten visions that are given to us. Now, this last vision is of four chariots. And I think probably we ought to get it before us here today. I'm reading now verse 1 of chapter 6. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. All right, now, for just a moment or two, let's look at this. Again, and this has run all the way through. I'm sure by now it's a little monotonous to you. But he says, I turned and lifted up mine eyes. Now, these visions are not dreams. They were given to him at night, but he was not asleep when they were given to him. His eyes were wide open. He saw these things, and a double emphasis is given time and time again, and we have it here. I lifted up mine eyes. That's enough to let you know that he saw that. But he says, and I looked. And when you look, friends, you've got to use your eyes. And behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, let me go to the end of the verse and attempt to identify these two mountains. What are the two mountains? Well, I have looked at several of the commentators in this particular place here, and their interpretation, and I think most of them agree on it, or at least the majority of the outstanding ones, they believe it's Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And that would put you down in the Kidron Valley. So that we have here these four chariots, and they are down in the valley. Now, we assume when we see the four chariots that there are horses that are hitched to them, 
and we're going to find out that there were, and that there were charioteers or drivers of the chariots, and we'll find that that is true also. Now, since there are four chariots here, it seems that it is a reminder of the fact that we have before us here the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, there's another way of interpreting this, of course. There were four great world empires that Daniel saw, and these four empires were judged of God, and they were all Gentile empires, and each one of them has been judged of God. And that part of Daniel's vision has actually been literally fulfilled. And these four chariots could represent that very easily. But John in Revelation, speaking of that which is future, in fact, he opens that period of the great tribulation period by presenting to us the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there is a very striking correspondence between these four chariots and the horses and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And very frankly, I'm inclined to go along with the viewpoint that though it could represent these four nations, and I'm not going to fall out with anyone that sees it like that, but that actually what we have here is the great tribulation period. It looks down to the future when God intends to judge the Gentiles. And whether it means these four nations are the great judgment at the end during the great tribulation period, I think that both are involved here. But the important thing is, we saw in the last chapter, chapter 5, in both the flying scroll and the woman in the ephah flying through the air like an astronaut or the flying nun, why, we saw that that was judgment upon God's earthly people, the nation Israel. Now, this reveals God's judgment of the Gentiles. Not only a past judgment, as we have in the four nations, but a future judgment that is coming during the great tribulation period. Four judgments that will finally bring to the earth the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom here upon the earth. Now, that's very important for us to see. Now, again, let me read this verse with that in mind. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between the two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, bronze or brass, actually, bronze was known in the earth at a very early period. Well, may I say to you, bronze goes back almost to the beginning of civilization. It's one of the metals that you find that it was used in the tabernacle. It was used in two of the articles of furniture that were used in the judgment of sin. One was the brazen altar, and the other was the lava of brass. Both of them stood in the outer court, 
and had to do with the judgment of sin and sins in the lives of these people. And so here, I would assume that since these mountains are called now the two mountains, and they are of bronze, what he's saying is that we're speaking of judgment, that judgment is going forth from God, and the four judgments now are mentioned. Now, will you notice, we have before us here, in verse 2, "...before the first chariot were red horses, and before the second chariot were black horses, and before the third chariot were white horses, and before the fourth chariot..." We have here, the New Schofield Reference Bible has daplid and bay horses. Well, the old translation had grizzled. Well, I like the word daplid better, although I don't know what it means. I'm not, well, I know what the dictionary says, but I'm not quite sure that I'm clear on what kind of horses they are here, other than they were pale horses. That, I think, is quite evident. Now, again, may I say to you, we have the same color horses in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I don't think that this is accidental by any means that Zechariah gave this of the chariots, John of the four horsemen, and we're speaking actually about the same thing. Now, the red horse in John's vision represents war. And the second one, black horse, that represents the fact of famine that was coming on the earth. And then the pale horse is the pale horse of death, and that is plague that is coming on the earth. All of these being judgments from Almighty God. Now, there is the white horses that are here also. Now, the white horse is a horse that a great many like to identify as victory. Well, the white horse is the horse that you find in Revelation. The first white horse is ridden by one, and then immediately after him is the red horse of war. I think the first horseman represents Antichrist, and that he will bring a false peace into the world, because after him... There breaks upon the earth actually the red horse of war, and war breaks out. And I don't think we've really seen a world war yet. I think that this earth will be inflamed by the war that will break out in the end times, because man is a warlike creature as long as there's sin in his heart. And when that horseman rides through the earth, May I say, and I say it reverently today, all hell will break loose on this earth at that particular time because no one today seems to emphasize how frightful the great tribulation is going to be when it breaks upon this earth and it will be the riding of that horse. So I think this is something for the encouragement of those people in that day that Zechariah gave it to them, that God would judge the Gentile nations as he'll judge his own. But that there is coming down yonder in the future, and John picks that up, the judgment 
of God upon the earth when the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth. Now, God intends to judge the whole earth. And you find out in the interpretation, and I'd like to begin reading now with verse 4, and we'll pick up the interpretation. He says here, Then I answered and said unto the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now, these spirits that are mentioned here are obviously angels that are directing this, the same that you have in the book of Revelation, that angels have charge of the judgments that are coming upon the Gentile nations. Now, will you notice that he answers by saying, these are the four spirits of the heavens. They go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now, we get the interpretation. The black horses, which are there, go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. And the dapple go forth toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. Now, the bay horses apparently go along with the dapple horses into the south country. So they walk to and fro through the earth. Now, we have the black and the white going into the north country, and we have the dappled horses going to the south. Now, none going to the east or the west. Well, on the west is the Mediterranean Sea. We must remember that two mountains that are suggested there are obviously Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And so the Mediterranean Sea being on the west, the horse would not move in that direction. It's not a seahorse that we have here. And then there would not be any movement toward the east for the simple reason that that great Arabian desert is out there. Now, the direction they go would lead them throughout the whole earth, of course. And the thought that is given here is just simply that. In verse 7, "...and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Go from here." walk to and fro through the earth. So they walk to and fro through the earth. Now, the black horses and the white went into the north country. And I personally believe that the judgment of the great tribulation period begins actually with Russia coming down into that land and that there would be the judgment first to go to the king of the north, to Gog and Magog in the north. Then the judgment in the south would be toward Egypt. But the thought here is not so much the order, the riding of the horses, as you have in Revelation. Because in Revelation, we are given the series of the great tribulation period. We're given one event, one crisis right after another that shall follow. First, in Revelation, the white horse rides forth 
Well, he brings a victory that brings in a false peace into the earth. And actually, the world will think that they're entering the millennium when actually they're entering the great tribulation period. Because immediately after the white horse, there comes forth the red horse of war, and that breaks out worldwide. Then there rides forth this black horse, and this black horse is that of famine. Famine generally follows war and also plague. And then death is the fourth one. The pale horse rides forth, or the dappled, as we have it here in the bay that are mentioned. So that we have here these four different chariots with the four different colored horses. Here, the order is not the important thing. It would seem to me that the important thing that is mentioned here is the fact that God intends to judge all the nations of the earth. And each one of these represents a judgment that is coming from God. This all takes place in the great tribulation period. And you find the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as John gives it, in the sixth chapter and read on into the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation, and you'll find it mentioned there. Now, when we come to verse 9, the visions are over now, and we come back to that which actually takes place. Now, again, let's recall that Zechariah, along with Haggai, is prophesying to the remnant that have returned to this land. Now, I'm reading verse 9. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even Heldai, and Tobijah, and of Jediah, who are come from Babylon, and come the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now, we are given here three men that have returned from Babylon. They did not come back with either of the groups that returned, but they have now come on their own. Now, Heldai means robust, and Tobijah means God's goodness, and Jediah means God knows. Now, you can tie those together if you want to with, I think, a very definite meaning that God knows that through his goodness that he intends to put his king upon the throne down here, and he's going to do it in a robust and powerful manner. And what takes place now is a symbolic crowning, but it pictures the coming of Christ and his reign upon this earth, that which is yet future. And we have that given to us, and I'd like to read on into this chapter. Verse 11, "...then take silver and gold and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua." the son of Josedek, the high priest. Now, the Lord Jesus is the great high priest today. The book of Hebrews is a book that speaks of the fact that Christ is our great high priest. And we're told to consider 
our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today, he's passed within the veil. He's gone into heaven, and he's sitting at God's right hand. But he's waiting until the time comes when his enemies are made his footstool, and he'll come forth to this earth to establish his kingdom here upon this earth. Now, what we have here is a picture of that. And you'll notice that all of this follows in sequence. After the judgment of God's people, after the judgment of all the Gentile nations of the world, now we have the coming of Christ and his crowning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the explanation of why we have all these crowns here. He is the king of kings, and all will cast their crowns before him. He is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And so Joshua here, as the high priest of that day, represents the Lord Jesus. We have actually the threefold ministry of the Lord Jesus given in time span. The first time span is that he came to this earth 1,900 years ago as God's prophet. He came down here to speak for God as God's Word. And he himself was the Word of God, for he revealed God in humanity and revealed the love of God by going and dying upon the cross for your sins and my sins, so that he is God's prophet. Now today, he's God's priest, and he's at God's right hand. He's entered into the Holy of Holies, God's presence itself. He's presented his own blood for your sins and my sins, and he ever lives there to make intercession for us. He also intervenes for us when there's sin in our lives, and we confess that sin. He also walks among the lampstands. Now, one day he's coming out again. And when he comes out, he's coming, as the book of Revelation makes it very clear, as king of kings and lord of lords, so that he's prophet, priest, and king. And so here Joshua is crowned because he is the high priest. Now, we are given the other figure of speech that we have had before, and it's here in verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, that was not the name of Joshua. But actually, it's the name that's been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came 1,900 years ago as the branch, a root out of a dry ground. The very fact that he came into humanity and came to a people at the time that he came when they were subject to Rome is the most amazing thing in the world. He's a root out of a dry ground. He wasn't even the root of David. He was the root of Jesse. Jesse was a peasant, and he didn't come as a king. He came as the Savior of the world. He's to be called Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. Though he's in the line of David, he's a root out of a dry ground. Suppose you'd go out on this California desert, 
that's to the east of us here, or into Arizona, or New Mexico. Some of the places are extremely desolate. And suppose as you walked along in that dry, where nothing is growing except cacti, and there are few rattlesnakes around, and all of a sudden you come upon an iceberg lettuce that's growing there, luscious and green. You would be amazed at that. In fact, it's just something that couldn't happen under normal circumstances. Well, the Lord was the root out of a dry ground. He was the branch. Now he's coming again as the branch. But this time, the branch is to rule the world Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. So that the encouragement that's given to these people locally and at that particular time is this, that this house that you're building is in the series of houses. First, it was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Then it was Solomon's temple. And then it was Zerubbabel's temple. Then it was Herod's temple. And there is to be a great tribulation temple built. And then there will be the millennial temple that will be built upon this earth. This is in the series of temples, and God calls it one house. He never speaks of it as being separate, but one house, so that what they are doing It may look small, as we saw in the book of Haggai, and many of them thought it was not very important. God says that he's the one to judge the importance of it, and it's in his plan and purpose. And that is the thing, again, we'd emphasize to many of you today. Now, I get letters of people saying, well, I can't do very much for God. Now, who told you that you couldn't do very much for God? This temple that these people built, some of the old-timers who'd seen Solomon's temple, they've wept. They said, this is nothing compared to it. God says, I'm with you in this building. And I wasn't in Solomon's temple in the last days. The Shekinah glory had departed, and Ichabod was written over it. But now I'm with you. Who told you that you couldn't do much for God? My friend, if you are working for God and in God's plan and purpose, and I don't care how small that might be, might be a mother today that has one little boy or one little girl, and you bring that one up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they go out as a missionary, or they become a real worker for God. May I say to you, who's going to determine whether it's great or not. God is the one that's to determine that. And if you're in the plan and purpose of God and you're doing what God wants you to do, well, I'd say to you that your work is as important as anyone's work at the present hour. And I make this statement again. I think the greatest pulpits that we have in Southern California are not in churches. They happen to be sick beds where some dear saint of God is confined. Somebody told me the other day about a young man that is confined to his bed, 
and he is paralyzed from his neck down. And how he is a radiant Christian listens to this program, and he is sending out literature all the time. And may I say to you, I'm not sure but what that sick bed of that young fella is more important than this radio ministry. And it's probably more important than anyone that you know about today. And you think they're doing something big and great for God. You let God decide that. The important thing is for you and me to get into the will of God. And that is the point that both Haggai and Zechariah were trying to get over to these people. You're doing what God wants you to do. It's small, but it's in the plan and purpose of God. It's great and big, and it's going to eventuate in Jesus coming to the earth and establishing his kingdom. My friend, you can't improve on that kind of a program, and that's God's program for you and for me today. Now, let me read on, therefore. Verse 12, "...and speak unto him, saying..." Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. Even he shall build a temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both." And the crowns shall be to Helam, and to Tobijah, and to Jediah, and to Han, the son of Zephaniah, for memorial in the temple of the Lord. Now, somebody asked me the question, why was it that in the first list, you're only given there these three names? Now, we have a name of another fellow added, and his name was H-E-N, Han, and I don't know why, but I always try to furnish an answer for anybody that asks a question. So I said, his name's Han. I guess he just chickened out and was afraid to come up with them at first. So he joined them later. But I trust that you understand I'm being facetious. That is not really the right translation or interpretation, I'm sure. Now, friends, I want to read this verse that actually concludes these ten visions of Zechariah. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and this shall come to pass if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, I want to put down a preface to this passage of Scripture here. We're coming now to the conclusion of the first major division of Zechariah. And we've seen ten visions. And we need now to ascend our own watchtower and see where we're in the stream of history and prophecy. It is possible to lose our way through this section, and by so doing, I think, miss one of the greatest lessons of Scripture and one of the greatest principles that God puts down. And I would urge those today who attempt to teach prophecy to study this little book rather carefully. I think it will deliver them from making some of these wild and weird interpretations. 
And so in this first section of ten visions, and if you only see eight there, that's all right if you wish it that way. These visions, I'll agree, they are wild and weird, and they're highly symbolic. And when you go through them, you're apt to come to the conclusion they're just haphazard dream stuff of a prophet of long ago, and that they are totally unrelated one to another, and that they can be interpreted in most any way, and they are being used today to come up with some rather fragile fables, if you please, rather than a real interpretation. Now, they cannot mean whatever any expositor wants them to mean to fit some absurd scheme of scriptural interpretation. They are not just a conglomerate of visions. There is a danger of just lifting one out for some purpose and paying no attention to the context of the rest of Scripture and to forget that one of the great rules for interpreting prophecy is that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. You've got to fit it in to where it belongs. Now, all of these visions are connected and related. They have a meaning that's both local and they tell a story They give an outline of history, and they are far-reaching into the future. They tell one story, and they serve one purpose. And that has a threefold application. You just can't get anything out of them. You have all the way from the riders under the myrtle trees to the multicolored chariots, judgment is the subject, actually, in each one of them and certainly in the background all the way through. You have here the whole future, the nation Israel, including the destruction of her enemies, and finally her regathering to the land of Israel, and her cleansing and restoration to her high priestly witness, and the establishment of the theocracy again, And now in this section, the thing that finalizes it all, the coming of Christ to the earth as the great priest-king to reign on the earth on the throne of David. All of that is before us here. Israel had returned to the land. Israel was discouraged. They wanted to leave off building the temple. God raised up Haggai and Zechariah. And the people were discouraged because... Not only did the work move slowly, it was difficult, but what they did seemed so small and inconsequential when compared to the greatness of Babylon. And you must remember that most of these people had been to Babylon in captivity, and they had seen those great pagan heathen temples there, and the Medo-Persian Empire, even greater and larger temples. And now there has come temporarily a time of peace. And it was actually a time for them to build. But they weren't moving as they should. And God raised up these prophets. And Israel was under the cruel hand of a foreign despot. And it would continue down through the centuries until finally Christ would come. And actually, it's not over today. Oh, I recognize they're a nation, but they sure have had trouble, haven't they? 
they have also found out that they have been put on the auction block and the nations of the world were willing to sell Israel for a gallon of gasoline, actually millions of barrels of Arab oil. And that was a pretty good price, I guess. That's more than Judas got for selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Millions of dollars were involved in this. But the thing that this brings out, and of course Israel not following the Word of God does not have this encouragement today. And they need this prophecy of Zechariah. God would judge these Gentile nations. He would cleanse his people. And they must be redeemed as any sinners redeemed. And God would send his king And all of this is in these visions, and more for that matter. Now, there is a great threefold meaning I'd like to call to your attention as we draw near to the end. There's what is known as the contemporary meaning. That is, Zechariah was speaking into a local situation and a problem that existed in his day. And he was speaking to the people of his day regarding their problem. And therefore, it had a contemporary meaning. People should not be discouraged, was his message. They are in the plan and purpose of God. And they need to see it from the perspective of God's eternal program. And they were merely a little part in that program. And that temple they were building would finally usher in the great millennial temple that the Messiah himself would build. And this was part of the program, and all of it's called God's house. Now, there was also another meaning, a continuing meaning. That is, there's a message for our day. You see, all Scripture's given by inspiration of God. It's profitable. Not all of it's written to us. I don't think God's asked us to build a temple. I'd never felt like I wanted to engage in that, although... There are a lot of Christians that tried to get some stone out of Indiana and move it over to Israel to help them build a temple. But may I say that you can forget that type of baloney that's going around today. Our business is not to get stone or marble to Israel to help them build a temple. Our business is to get the one who is the rock of ages, the one who is the stone cut out without hands, the one who is the stone that he said of himself that if you fall on me, you can be broken. But if it falls on you, then the stone will come someday. It will come in judgment. But today you can fall on him, come in repentance, and come as a sinner to him. And these visions, therefore, do have a message for us today. Even that first woman astronaut flying through the air with the greatest of ease in a bushel basket trapeze. Yes, God's moving in judgment of Gentile nations. He moved in judgment of Babylon, and they disappeared from the page of history. Media Persia has come and gone, and the Greco-Macedonian empires come and gone, and the Roman fell apart. It'll come back together again. And after all, this world is a stage, as Shakespeare said, where every man must play his part as an individual message. It's a place where God is not only judging nations today, 
but God is judging individuals. I wonder, if my Christian friend, are you blind to the fact that God is moving in the history of this world? God is judging our nation today. Now, I've had several letters that think I ought to run up the American flag and say everything is all right. Everything's not all right. I believe in the American flag. I am for the American flag and mother and apple pie. I'm for the whole bit, my friend. But I think we need to rub our nose into some facts and quit sticking our head in the sand. Vietnam was a place of shame and humiliation. What did we actually accomplish over there? We spent millions of dollars. Wouldn't it have been better years ago to have sent Bibles and missionaries? Honestly, I don't care who you are. Don't you believe they would have done a little bit better starting schools and churches and orphans' homes and teaching people to be honest? Why, they say the biggest rackets that are being run today, and the biggest black market is over there. We didn't teach them anything because of the fact that we are not a nation capable of teaching morality to any peoples of the world today. We need to bow our own head in shame. We don't even blame the leaders who got us into the mess. In fact, we've made heroes out of those of the past. May I say to you, you talk about the blind leading the blind, and you talk about on the other side of the Iron Curtain, we say, my, isn't it terrible those people are being brainwashed. They're not being brainwashed any more than we're being brainwashed. We stumble along in our sin and our arrogance. The greatest nation in the world today, the strongest nation. And I wonder how long it's going to last. Who would have believed 50 years ago that the day would come that we would have to yield to the demands of a few desert sheiks who ruled over a few people and a bunch of mangy camels? What relationship did anyone see between a camel and a Cadillac? And today, my friend, the Cadillacs and the Lincoln Continentals and the Rolls Royces have gotten in line in front of filling stations because a few Arab sheiks said, line up, boys. That's the way we're going to have it. What humiliation for a nation. Our eyes are not open. We keep going on in sin. The wealth of the world is returning to that section of the country. They are going to bankrupt the world today in selling oil, my friend. And the interesting thing is that God said that's the way it's going to happen. And that's the way it's happening today. We are too spiritually blind as a nation to be able to read the current events in the context of Scripture and history. God's moving in history. And if you listen to the news media, you'll become discouraged. Besides that, you'll get brainwashed. And you look at Washington today, you feel like giving up or throwing up. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the panel discussions of politicians, educators, and the military, and athletes, and the movie colony. I don't think they have any message for us right now. Perhaps you can hear the still, small voice of God in these visions they're not weird and wild, and no weird and wild interpretation is satisfactory. God's purpose will prevail. God is moving in history to accomplish his purpose. And then there's the third interpretation, the consummation of all things. History is flowing in the channel of prophecy. And will you notice here 
He says in verse 12, I read it again, and speak unto them, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, a man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of God. And the branch here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming to reign. He is that branch, by the way, the root out of a dry ground that died on a cross for us. But he's also something else. Isaiah said in Isaiah 4, 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Yes, he's going to build a temple, we're told. And what is he? Verse 13 says, He shall be a priest upon his throne. Now, notice that. He's a priest upon his throne. How important it is to see that. He is both priest and king. And when we get a little later to that prophecy concerning the triumphal entry, we'll see that the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem three times as prophet, priest, and king. Now, verse 14, the crown shall be to Helaman and Tobijah. Now, no one wore these crowns. They were put up as symbols in the top windows of the temple. And they were there for a memorial. What? To let the people know there's coming a priest-king. A priest-king. That's the reason he could cleanse the temple, by the way, and did. And he says they're going to even come from afar off. They'll come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Now, friends, you have over in the 15th verse, which is the last verse, there had come this delegation down from Babylon, and they had come with some crowns that they had made. And the message that was given at that time by the Lord was to make it very clear that all that they did when they crowned Joshua... He was the high priest, and it was symbolic, and it was looking forward to the time when the one who's called the branch, whose name is the branch. Now, may I say that the Word of God speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ as the branch in a fourfold way. For instance, you have over in Isaiah, the fourth chapter, The second verse, "...in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel." And so you have there the one that's presented as the branch of Jehovah. And then you find out that he is also called the branch of David. That's over in the 11th chapter of Isaiah and a stem out of Jesse. And then you find also that he's spoken of as Jehovah's servant, the branch. And we've already seen that here in Zechariah in the third chapter, the eighth verse. And in that you have his humiliation and obedience unto death. And then in Zechariah, in this passage that we are looking at here, He's called the man whose name is the branch. 
Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, you have him as the branch of David. He is in the line of David. In the Gospel of Mark, he is Jehovah's servant, the branch. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's the man whose name is the branch. And in the Gospel of John, he's the branch of Jehovah. And that is a marvelous and glorious picture of him and the picture that we have here. It's the man whose name is the branch. He's the one that's going to rule and reign. He'll build a millennial temple, we're told here. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And he'll be a priest upon his throne. We emphasized that last time. And the crowns, verse 14, shall be to heal him and so on. These crowns were to be a memorial. We're told that here for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they were put in the upper windows, and they were to remind the people that God would send the Messiah, and he would not only be the king, but he would be the priest. And now verse 15 says, "...and they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and this shall come to pass..." if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord. Now, the message for these people, of course, is a message of encouragement. Zacharias encouraged them to build the temple. He and Haggai both was trying to overcome their discouragement and all of the hurdles that they had to get over. And now he encourages them to build. Why? Because this little segment that seems to them so small, it fits in to God's plan and program of the ages that will finally bring the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as the Messiah, as the branch to rule. And so what you have here, I consider a tremendous, wonderful picture. And it reveals Christ in all of his glory the second coming of Christ. And what they were doing was in the plan and program of God. And he would be a priest-king and would serve in the millennial temple. And in verse 15, he's saying to them this, the temple that you are building now is not an end in itself. It points on to the coming of the branch, of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the Redeemer. In other words, this is the hope that was given to them. Now, take a look at that little group building the temple. And they were going to get help from afar. But actually, as you look at it, it's not impressive. But when you see it in the plan and purpose of God and in the sweep of history, it points on to Christ. And may I now make this comment. Any Christian work that's an end in itself is doomed. It may be a cathedral on the boulevard that's named for some man. Or it may be a great building named for a man who's very generous. Or a college that exalts a man. I know of a Christian college that's got names of men on practically every building that's on the campus exalting man, and even a mission that just honors a man, 
is doomed. And my friend, let's be very personal, a radio program that is for the profit of a man and for his exaltation. All of these are doomed. They're going to go down in ignominy and defeat. They must honor the branch because God is moving to that day when he's going to reign, moving to that day when he'll first take his own out of this earth, the church. And then he'll be coming to the earth to establish his kingdom here upon the earth so that today we can bring it right down to today. That little group of believers on a back street that's meeting in the name of Christ, seeking to honor him and studying his word, and they really want to do his will. And I think that, very frankly, they can truly sing to the glory of God, Lord Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. May I say to you, that little group that's unknown to the world that's meeting out somewhere today on a back street or up in some rural community is more important in the plan of God than anything that's happening in Washington or the capitals of the world today. And I know that that's hard for a great many people to believe. But that little group, are in a plan and program that's going to join in a mighty chorus someday when they sung a new song, and it's in heaven. And they're going to sing it to the Lamb, and they say to him, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue, people and nation." and hast made us unto our God a kingdom of priests, we shall reign on the earth. That's the goal toward which they're moving. And so that little group that the world is ignoring today, and the multitudes have passed them by, they are more important to the plan and purpose of God than any other group on this earth. May I say to you, this is a tremendous passage of Scripture and what a message it has for us today. Now, that brings us to the conclusion of the first major division of Zechariah. 